So this last week, I had to go to Starbucks to get an order for several people. And it reminded me how much I really don't like doing that. And the reason is there's so many different choices that I have to write everything down because I'm never going to remember everybody's order uh, when I get to Starbucks. So I have to write it all down. In fact, if you, if you do the numbers, it's more than 87,000 different drink mixes that you can get at Starbucks. And so I feel like every time I go there, I have to make at least five decisions just to order a drink, right? So, but we're making decisions all day long, aren't we? Uh, in fact, the researchers will tell us that an average adult in North America will make between 34,000 and 35,000 decisions every day. Now, most of those decisions are subconscious, so we don't think about them as much, but, but our brain is active making all of those decisions. And so it's no wonder that we're very tired by the end of the day, right? It's a lot of decisions to make. So sometimes they're easy decisions, sometimes they're light decisions, like what kind of coffee are we going to get. Sometimes they're much more important decisions to make. Sometimes we do a good job and make good decisions. Sometimes we don't do a good job and we don't make good decisions. So I thought this morning we would start with a little bit of quiz about making good decisions. Because I know that first thing this morning when you woke up, you thought, wouldn't it be nice if we had a quiz in church this morning? Okay, but this is a pretty easy quiz. What I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to show you six pictures. And for every picture that you think this was a good decision, I want you to give yourself a point. So six pictures, if you agree with all of them, that's six points. So you can keep track yourself and I'll talk to you at the end. So let's start with the first one. So this is the classic power bar, floating power bar in the pool. Okay, how else are you going to power all of the electronics that you bring into the pool with you? So, ask yourself, is this a good decision? Is this a bad decision? If you think it's a good one, give yourself a point, okay? Second one. This is called an extension ladder, in essence, okay? And sometimes it's hard to reach some of those higher parts, and you have to get a little bit creative. So, good decision or bad decision? Okay, how many of us have actually gone painting and realize that there's just a little spot that we can't quite make. And sometimes we get a little bit creative about how we, uh, we reach that spot. So, is this gentleman making a good decision or a bad decision? Okay. A lot of workplaces start with some exercises in the morning. Uh, this particular gentleman has found a way to combine stretching with his job. And so, uh, good decision or bad decision? Okay, WorkSafe would call this fall arrest or fall restraint, okay? I'm not sure that this would actually classify as what something WorkSafe would approve of as fall restraint, but good decision or bad decision. One more. We're from Maple Ridge area. I'm sure you've spent some time in the mountains. I'm sure you've gotten the urge to, to go onto the edge of a cliff and do a handstand. So a good decision or bad decision. So, Tally up your, your marks, and anyone here, anyone here get over three? <laughs> Good. I congratulate you. You are a very well-versed well and very knowledgeable people here. So, 
Um, but as you can probably tell, today we're going to talk about decisions. And we're in the middle of a, a, a series called Foundations of Our Faith, and it's looking at the patriarchs. So that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what can we learn from their lives? And so I'm just going to give you a quick recap of where we've been. Uh, first, first time out, Pastor Tom put this up here, and really Abram, who was later become Abraham, and his family were living in Ur of the Chaldeans. That's the bottom right-hand red mark that you see there. And he and his father Terah and his wife Sarai and his, uh, his nephew Lot, they decided to move to Canaan. So they, they started that journey and they got to Haran, or what it says, Charan on here, uh, the second red circle there. So they got there and they settled there for a while. And Terah, his father, passed away. And God called Abraham and said that he would make him into a great nation and that he would lead him to the land that he was going to be into. So Abraham and Sarai and his uh, son, or nephew Lot, they got up and they left Haran and they made their way down into Canaan. And in particular, if you notice there, just around where it says um, Hebron, just above that it says Bethel. And in Bethel, he, he stopped and he made an altar to the Lord. And he called on the Lord at that point in time. But then there was a famine in the land. And so Abram Abram and his wife and his, his uh, nephew, they all went to Egypt. And you'll probably remember the story from a couple of weeks ago. Things didn't go so well there. Abram decided he was going to kind of take things into his own hands. And he said that he was going to ask his wife to pretend to be his sister. Well, long and short of it, Pharaoh decides he's going to take his wife as his wife. Things go bad. And uh, Abram and the rest of the family actually get kicked out of Egypt. And it's a story that probably caused a bit of tension between Abram and his wife. Uh, it's not something you'd probably want to discuss and reminisce over over Valentine's Day uh, dinner somewhere out. So that's where we've been. And so that's where we catch up with the story this morning. So let's just uh, pray as we approach God's Word. Father, we uh, approach your word with reverence because we know that it is powerful and that you uh, can anoint it to us to be able to change our lives, to challenge us, to rebuke us, to correct us. And so we now commit ourselves to that end, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name that your word will go out and you will touch our lives in the way that you desire. Amen. So we start in uh, verse 5, chapter 13 of Genesis. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they were staying together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herders and mine. For we were close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. So at this point in time, it's a conservative estimate that there's about a thousand people traveling with Abraham. So not only has he got a thousand people with him, but he's also got the, his own flocks, his herds, that all those thousand people have their possessions and tents. And then... There's Lot and his possessions and his people. And so it's a huge amount of people walking around. And so if you think of how much, 
how much effort it takes to coordinate a family vacation. Um, just think of that and multiply it by about 100, okay? So this is the kind of coordination and logistics that has to go on in order for Abram to move around with Lot in this area. And it's just not enough to actually be able to sustain both of them. And so there become some tensions. There's some quarreling. And so it's, it's something that we see in families all the time, right? We have some quarreling. We, there's the old adage that you get to choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. So we have tensions in family, and sometimes those tensions can get pretty tough, and it can actually cause a bit of a, a break in some of our relationships. I had an extended family member who, um, who, who really had a difficult time with his daughter and his mother-in-law to the point where he no longer talked to them. In fact, uh, he forbid anyone in his family to actually talk to them. And he didn't go to his daughter's wedding, uh, and he, to his dying day, I don't believe he ever reconciled anything there. And that caused so much strife and so much struggle within his family for years and years and years. And, and we can get to that point if we're not careful. In fact, uh, Carl... Um, just trying to think of his name, Carl uh, Pilmer, Carl, Carl Pilmer, who is a, um, a, a professor at Cornwell University. He did in 2019, he did a survey across the United States of how many people were estranged from family members. And the survey showed that 27% of the people that were answering the survey were actually estranged. They were actually had a break in a relationship with one of their family members. And he felt that that was actually a low number because there's, there's a stigma involved with that. Even if it's a confidential survey, there's still people that don't want to admit that they have that kind of a break in their family. <clears throat> well, Professor Diana Hill, in a recent article in the um, Psychology Today, talking about those numbers, said that the most common reason for estrangement include unmet expectations, boundaries that are repeatedly crossed, mental health problems, in-laws, divorce, and financial differences. And as you read a lot about this uh, online, you'll find that oftentimes they'll say sometimes you just can't fix the problem. Well, of course, we know that with God, everything is possible. But these, these cause difficult times. And so how does Abraham deal with some of that strife, with some of that quarreling that's going on? Well, first thing is, Abraham makes a decision as a peacemaker. So he's looking at this, and the first thing he does is he recognizes it's a two-way street. He says, there's quarreling between you and me. He doesn't say, Lot, this is all your fault. Lot, you need to move because you're causing all kinds of grief. He actually says, this is a two-way street. He takes some responsibility for part of the quarreling he's in. The second thing that he does is he takes the initiative to actually propose a solution. And this particular solution is a solution of separation because the problem is that there's just too many of them together. So it's a solution of separation, but it's not a separation of relationship. It's simply a physical separation in order to sustain the relationship. And the third thing that he does is he doesn't kind of use the rights that he would have. He's the older person here. He's the, he's the patriarch. He's the, the one who has the most possessions. He's the one that God's given this land to. It could be easy for him to say, no, God gave me this land, therefore you, Abraham, need to go. But he doesn't do that. 
he actually subjugates himself and he says, you choose. So he actually takes that decision and he specifically becomes a peacemaker in what he does. In Matthew 5, 9, it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, there's a difference between being a peacemaker and being a solver. Um, God doesn't call us to fix every problem. God calls us to be peacemakers. And in Romans 12, 8, Paul says, As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So our part is to try to live at peace with the people we have around us. And so this morning, you may find yourself, you know, when you think of the fact that a quarter of the people in the U.S. have estrangements, if you look at the number of people we have here, I'm sure there are a number of you that have issues in their family, which are difficult, which are uh, sometimes hard to deal with and hurtful. And there may be some communication that's not going on there because of, because of stubbornness, because of pride, because of the hurt that you feel. And perhaps this morning, God is saying to you, uh, be a peacemaker. Make that first step. Make that phone call. Send that email. Send that letter. Take the initiative to actually start that conversation again. The other thing that Abraham shows here is that he makes a decision by faith. Now, God has promised Abraham this land. He's told him that he was going to inherit this land. And so, really, Abraham could try to make things happen to make that promise come true. He could, again, he could tell Lot to get out of his land. You know, because God's given me this land. He's promised me this land. He could take that initiative to say, go. But he doesn't. He allows God to work in this particular situation. It's very similar to pastor, instance, pastor, very similar to King David. When King David was anointed as king, Saul was still king. So David had anointed king and God had promised him that he would be the king. And two times after that, when Saul is pursuing him, David has the opportunity to make that happen. He has the opportunity to actually force that promise to come true by killing Saul, who's right in front of him, who could easily be killed. In fact, his people, his, his uh, army people are telling him, go ahead, God has delivered Saul into your hands. It's a time for you to take that kingdom that God promised you. But David didn't do that. David said, no, I will not touch the anointed of God. And he lets it go. But God eventually does give him the kingdom because of that. You know, there's a story of a man named Eric Little, and uh, he was a missionary in China for many years. And I was going to say to everybody that everybody remembers Chariots of Fire, which was a movie, and then I recognized that that was 43 years ago. So two things came to mind. The first is I'm really old. And the second one is you may not have seen Chariots of Fire. So... Chariots of Fire is a story about, uh, about the 1924 Paris Olympics. And it's about the United Kingdom's team. And one of the members on that is Eric Little. And he's from Scotland. He's born, his parents were missionaries, very devout Christian, but he loves to run. And he's a great rugby player. And so he's been training for years in the 100 meters, which is his specialty. And so he goes to uh, Paris 
as a representative from Scotland in the 100 meters. But the problem is, the heats for the 100 meters are on Sunday. And for him, that was a big deal. Sunday was the Lord's Day. Sunday was not a day that you ran. Sunday was a day to be in church. And so he could have said, well, God really wants me to be in this race. God, God's put me here. Look at all the work that God and I have done to get here. And he could have forced it, but he didn't. He went to church. He skipped the heat. He didn't get into the 100-meter dash. But through circumstances, he was offered the opportunity to run in the 400 meters, which wasn't his race. But not only did he run in it, he got gold, and he set a world record at the same time. And the story that comes out of that gives so much glory to God that wouldn't have happened if he tried to pressure that and to make it happen. In Romans, Paul is talking about Abraham, and he's talking about his faith. And in particular, he's talking about about 25 years from this story, when Abraham is being told that he will have a son when he's 100 years old. And his wife, who is very old as well, is going to give birth to that son. And Paul says that Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. That kind of faith is what Abraham's exercising here as well. He's confident that God has power to give him the land he, he has promised to him. And he's saying here that I don't have to make that happen. God can make that happen. Now, that's not to say at all times God says pause. Sometimes God says, you know, this is where we're going. Let's go. Step out in faith and move. And God wants us to move with him. But sometimes God says pause and let me do something here first. And that's what happens here with Abraham. So Abraham makes a decision by faith. So what about Lot? Well, we continue reading in Genesis 13, 10 through 13. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt towards Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abraham, Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tent near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. So Abram says to Lot, he, he gives up all his rights. He says to Lot, you choose. Now, probably the appropriate response from Lot would have been, well, no, Abraham, or Abram, you're, you're the elder here. You're, you're the leader here. You make that choice. But he doesn't do that. He looks down at the plain of the Jordan River, and he likes what he sees. This is kind of a topographical map of that area. And as you can see in there at the top, there's the Sea of Galilee. And the water runs out of the Sea of Galilee through the Jordan River down to the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea. And that whole river area, it's a wide plain that's well, well watered and fertile. And on either side of it, there are mountains 
that are less, less watered. They're more arid, and so less, less fertile for what they have. And that's kind of where they're looking at this particular time. And if we kind of zoom in on just that one area, you see towards the top left-hand side of this um, graph or this uh, map is Bethel. And so from Bethel up on the hills, you can actually look down onto the Jordan Valley, and you can see the Jordan Valley and all that it has. And an interesting thing here is that we look at this map and we, we naturally orientate north as being top, and so we think of to the left is west and to the right is east. But that's not the way they thought back then. They always orientated themselves to the east. And so when Abraham says to, to Lot, you go to the left and I'll go to the right, or you go to the right and I'll go to the left, what he's actually saying is facing east, you go north, and I'll go south. You go south, and I'll go north. So Abram's actually offering him a portion of the land of Canaan because Canaan is from the, the Jordan to the left. It's towards the, the Mediterranean Sea. And so he's in Bethel. He's saying, well, you can go south towards Jerusalem, and I'll go north from Bethel, or, you can, or we can do the opposite. He's actually not offering Lot the plain. But Lot says, no, I think I'm going to take door number three because that looks better to me, right? He looks down at that valley and he thinks, that's lush. And in fact, we're, we're told in the Bible that it's like the Garden of Eden. It's like uh, Egypt in the area of Zor. And they've, they've kind of guesstimated where Zor is towards the bottom of that, that map there. And you'll also notice that they've kind of guesstimated where Sodom and Gomorrah is, and you see different, different people putting that differently, but usually it's somewhere that they feel towards the bottom and towards the east of the, the Salt Sea or the, the Dead Sea. So he's looking at that and he's saying, this is a lush land. And in fact, still, if you look at it, from, from the, the hills around the Jordan Valley, you can see that there's a lushness there. There's a greenness there because it's well watered. And so this is kind of what they would have looked at that they say there. And Lot says, I think that's what I want. He says, that's the prime real estate. That's the best part. I know you wanted me to go north or south, but I think that east is the better way. And sometimes we would have a hard time arguing with that, right? You know, God, or Abraham, is, in this case, has given him the choice. And so he looks around and he sees, where's the best place for me to go? And he looks at it and he looks at it and he says, where can I prosper? Where can I become wealthier? Where can I live in a good life? And so he looks at it through those kind of eyes. And he looks at it by sight. And the problem with doing that is that we only see a very thin slice of space and time. God sees all of it. And sometimes what looks good to us, what's tempting to us, God knows that it's not really the best for us. In fact, it says here that Sodom was wicked. Well, very shortly in the next chapter, in fact, we'll find that uh, Lot has not only gone across to the Jordan, he's actually gone all the way down to Sodom. 
and he's pitched his tent there, and he's, he's living in Sodom, and Sodom rebels against some other kings, and he actually ends up losing that and ends up getting carried away. And we'll talk next week probably about the fact that Abraham has to go and get him, has to save him and bring him back. And then a few chapters later on, God is actually saying he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He actually goes down, and he, he gets Lot out of there. But now Lot is coming out by the skin of his teeth. He's not taking a whole bunch of possessions that he entered into this particular uh, arrangement with here. He's got nothing. In fact, his wife turns to salt as she turns back and looks at what goes on in Sodom and Gomorrah. So he's lost family. He's lost possessions. He's gone to nothing. And that's all because his choice was based on his sight and not what God had intended for him. And it reminded me of uh, John Bunyan's uh, The Pilgrim's Progress. Um, if you've never read it, it's an old book. It's about 350 years old. And it's uh, the third, third best-selling uh, Christian book after the Bible. But it's written as an allegory. It's written as a, a kind of a dream of, of a Christian life and what happens in a Christian life. And it's a story about, in the first half of it anyways, it's a story about Christian. And it's his journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. So it's really the journey of faith. And at one point in time, he's with his, his companion, Faithful, and he's on the king's road, the, the narrow road that the Christian has to, to walk, and it goes right through the middle of a city called Vanity. And there's a bazaar in Vanity where you can buy just about everything. And in fact, it's called Vanity Fair. And Bunyan writes, at this fair are such merchandise sold as houses, lands, trades, places, honors, preferments, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, delights of all sort. So that's, it's the offering of the world is what he has here. And in particular, in this particular case, uh, his friend Faithful and him are beaten and caged and, and Faithful is actually executed. Christian continues on his way. But the point here is that every Christian walk walks through its own vanity fair. We're always being tempted in one way, shape, or form to take what the world has to offer us rather than what God has to offer us. In fact, in 1 John 2, John says that these are the cravings of sinful men, the lust of their eyes, and the boasting of what they have and do. And the key for us is to be able to fix our eyes on God and make decisions from his perspective and not by our sight. And we make major decisions many times in our lives. We decide what we will do for a living, where we will train for that, whether we're going to get married, who we're going to marry, whether we're going to have children, how many children we're going to have, where are we going to live, how are we going to live our lives, what are we going to spend our money on. There's so many things that we have to make major decisions of, and God is saying he wants to be a part of that. Don't simply make those decisions based on what you see, based on what the world has to offer you. Because in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, it says, we live by faith, not by sight. This time I'd like to ask the worship team to come back up. But our, 
Some of our decisions have far-reaching consequences. For Abraham, it was, it was the, for the next hundred years, plus hundred years, that, that Israel was developing is his based on where he decided to stay. For Lot, we've already talked about some of the disastrous consequences that uh, Lot faced because of what he said. And you may find yourself this morning that you, uh, you're in a place where you didn't want to be. Uh, where you've made some decisions over the time that perhaps you would like to redo. But the wonderful thing is that God meets us wherever we are and starts anew and takes us forward with Him. Perhaps this morning you're facing difficulties in a family. Perhaps there's some strain in some of the relationships you have. For anything that you need for that side of things, we'd love to be able to pray with you. And so as people are making their way back to the foyer, I'd invite you to come forward if you'd like someone to pray with you over some of those things. So God bless.